Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Well, greetings. This is Pastor Craig Mossgrove, and uh, just so honored today to be teaching uh, through the book of Revelation. This message is being recorded for Dwelling Place Church uh, here in Woodstock, Georgia. Um, We are getting ready to move into a brand new series all through the month of July here in 2016, where we're going to take a four-week approach or four uh, weeks to look at the book of Revelation particularly as it relates to us thriving in the midst of persecution and thriving in the midst of very difficult, pain-filled times. Now, if you're listening today, um, maybe you're not a part of our church, but if you are a part of our church, uh, wherever you're at today, what I'd love for you to do is if you're able to sit down uh, and take the book of Revelation, uh, I want you to turn to the book of Revelation. I know uh, this is an interesting, interesting book. Um, You know, the end isn't near. It's actually here in Visions of the Future. And uh, this book uh, is an amazing, amazing book. It's called Revelation, but in ancient times it would be called the Apocalypse. Uh, both names come from the book's first sentence, and which we'll read in just a minute. It said this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, or apocalypsis. Those two words, revelation, which is now, and apocalypse then, mean the same thing. It's a vision into the future. It's a vision into the spiritual realm. It's an unveiling if you will. I know people have been waiting for this series, very excited about this series, and um, the reason I am sharing this teaching today is because um, I felt myself as we were getting ready to teach over the next four Sundays at Dwelling Place, um, I found myself wanting to spend an entire Sunday just to do an overview of the whole book. If I don't do an overview of the whole book, for those who may have no exposure to this book, uh, the message this coming Sunday um, would be a little bit confusing. It uh, really would because um, you don't have the context to jump straight into the message. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take about 45 to 50 minutes and give you an overview of the whole book. Now, put a lot of time and preparation into pulling out what needs to be pulled out to give us a, uh, what I'm going to say is a panoramic view of the entire book of Revelation. If you look in the book of Revelation, Verse 1, the Bible says of chapter 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, from the onset of the book, you see that this revelation is of Jesus Christ himself. Right from the get-go, I want to tell you, this is not the revelation of the Antichrist. We will hear about him while we're studying this book, but we need to understand this book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if I hear in our own church people talking more about the Antichrist than they do about Jesus Christ, I will indeed lovingly rebuke you. Why? Because this is the revelation of Jesus. You know, you heard people say, turn to the book of Revelations. No, it's just the one revelation. And the events are shown to us as John writes what was shown to him. That word, dechnomai, shown, appears eight times in the book. But However, the word revelation, which is this word apocalypse, only occurs once and incurs both in the title and the focus of the book that Jesus Christ is unveiled as the Lord of history. Now, this outline that I want to give to you today reveals just a little bit in a grand scope how each chapter 
shows a different revelation of Christ. So if you look at chapter 1, the, the content of chapter 1 would be the introduction of the book, but it would be the revelation of Christ's person, his authority and presence. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book are the epistles to the seven churches in Asia, and that's the revelation of Christ administrating of his church. Chapter 4 and 5 of the book are the throne of God in heaven, which is the revelation of Christ's right and claim to earth. The, the Lamb of God receives title, so to speak, to this planet. Chapter 6 is the breaking open of seals number 1 through 6, which is the revelation of Christ's ministry as Savior and Judge. Okay, Savior going forth, Judge, obviously the great wrath. Chapter 7 of the book is the 144,000, what we call the redeemed host. This is the revelation of Christ's own. They're sealed and delivered. Uh, chapter 8 and 9 is the seventh seal, which is the first six trumpets. Uh, the seventh trumpet being the last trumpet that we see even in 1 Corinthians 15. We see it in 1 Thessalonians 4. What's that revelation? It's the revelation of Christ's people precipitating release through prayer. The re uh, precipitating release of what's in the heavenlies through prayer. Chapter 10 is the mighty angel announcing the end. And this is the revelation of Christ as consummator of history and as a commissioner of the end times message. Then chapter 11 and chapter 13 are the two witnesses and the wonder woman and the beast. This is the revelation of Christ's church in confrontation with evil. Evil through persecution, evil in spiritual warfare, and in conflict with what we'll see as the world system. Chapter 14 is the 144,000 and the six angelic actions. This is the revelation of Christ's own redeemed in triumph. Uh, each angelic action was indicating victory. Uh, chapters 15 and 16 are the seven vials of God's wrath. This is Christ's commission unto final judgment, which is set in an atmosphere of worship. Chapter 17 and 18 is the destruction of Babylon. We'll spend time talking about that today. That's the revelation of Christ's sovereign triumph over evil spiritual and economic control of mankind. All that is uh, of, not of God and will not last is, is indicative of the Babylon there in 17 and 18. Then chapter 19 and 20, you have the two last battles, which is the revelation of Christ's final triumph over and banishment of all evil, okay? And then the last two chapters of our book and study is chapter 21 and 22, which is the new heaven and new earth, which is the revelation of Christ's ultimate and eternal union with his own bride. Now, if you look back at our text in chapter 1, verse 1, this part B of verse 1 said, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, the Bible says John the Apostle who testifies to everything he saw, verse 2, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, you got to understand that John the Apostle had been banished to the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. He had been banished there around 90 AD, 95 AD for his faith in Christ and his public proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to do is give you again this overview of the whole book. This is taking place in about 90 A.D., and somewhere written around 90 A.D. There is an emperor at the time, a very evil emperor. His name was Domitian, and some people have argued that this was written maybe in the 60s with Nero, but I think there's a lot of evidence that speaks to Domitian. Number one, um, the, the God Emperor John said people worship the statue of the beast in Revelation 16:2. And if you study his, history, Dis Domitian was one of um, relatively few Roman emperors who actually claimed to be a god. He enforced emperor worship. Uh, there was persecution going on in Turkey. There's no evidence that Nero's persecution of Christians spread much beyond Rome. But Domitian's persecution is reported to have spanned the empire, which included much of Turkey. 
of which we're talking about in the book of Revelation. Um, also, the, the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 uh, for this book to be written during Nero, the churches are out of sync with Nero's timeline. And what do you mean by that, Craig? By the time that John wrote these letters to the seven churches, Christian congregations in three of the seven cities had already lost a lot of their fervor. And we see that, Ephesus, Sardis, and Laodicea. But yet in Nero's day, in the 60s, they were still startups. And the church at Smyrna may not even existed until after Nero. So that's why so many scholars argue that John wrote Revelation during um, the evil emperor Domitian's reign in the AD 90s instead of during Nero's reign, which was 30 years earlier. Now, if you go to verse 3, we're jumping back into chapter 1. The Bible said, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Notice, why? Because the time is near. And folks, this is a unique book in that there is no other book in the Bible that gives you that specific blessing and that promise if you read it and if you pay attention to it and if you obey it. Um, Nothing. This is kind of like the money-back guarantee, so to speak. I remember very vividly the first time that I sat down in one sitting and I read through the entire book. It changed my whole view of it. Um, It was for the first time in my life where I saw it as one whole picture, one whole message. Of course, it is. Just to sit down and read it. I didn't take notes. It took me about 45 minutes. I did that again this week, and I'm planning to do that again tomorrow uh, in preparation for this weekend. No notes, just reading through it. Um, I don't understand, honestly, pastors who don't take time to teach people the book of Revelation because this is the promise. Those who hear the words of this and understand it and take heart, they are blessed. There is a blessing. There is a promise. Uh, You know, you pastors say, uh, tell people to stay away from it because it will confuse you. No, just the opposite. It's not meant to confuse you. It's meant to clarify. The word revelation means an unveiling. uh, And and there is a specific promise to those who read it. And so I want to encourage you, if you're listening to this message today, please read it. If you're part of Dwelling Place, set aside time over this next week and read it in one setting. It's about 45 minutes. Just read in one setting. We ought to read it. This is what John tells us. We ought to teach it. Now, in chapter 1, Jesus appears to John in this vision. Now, this, of course, is in a glorified state, but I want you to look with me at John, or Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. This is what the Bible says. When I saw in verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead, and he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. And Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, Jesus is, of course, in a resurrected, glorified state. He goes on in verse 19, and he tells John, Write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Now, there, my friends, is an outline of the book. This book can be seen in three parts. You see, first of all, what John has seen. What he has seen is a glorified, resurrected Christ. Those things John had just beheld in his initial encounter with Jesus Christ, the glorified Christ. Then he said the things which are. That's chapters 2 and 3 of the book. Being those things which were present and throughout history in the church. And then the third part is the things which shall be hereafter. In other words, chapters 4 through 22, which is the bulk of the book, being those things forthcoming from that time through the present and into the future of this world and ultimately on into eternity. So you can see right there from verse 19 from the outset of the book that we already have in front of us kind of a a picture or a structure of which to outline what the Apostle John is about to tell us over the next few chapters, all right? 
And I will come back to some of those key concepts in just a moment when you approach the book of Revelation in this way, okay? Very, very relevant. Now, if you go on to the seven letters, which is chapter two and three of this book, there's seven letters to seven churches. And um, these are churches written all across ancient Asia. They weren't all of the churches there. They were chosen by God, I think, and personally for uh, the relevancy of their message is not to only speak to the churches then, but to speak to churches in our day and age, what will take place later. Now, the interesting thing is that Revelation, I guess what makes it so unique is the vast majority of the book is prophecy of events that are yet to take place when John is writing. And so we see the seven letters to seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and right after that, we get to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Now, if you are here at Dwelling Place this weekend, I want to spend all of my time just talking about the letters this weekend to those seven churches. For the sake of time and the panoramic view, I want to jump to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. And this is a great divide among scholars and readers of the book of Revelation. You get to verse 1, and he said, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open. Notice that. In heaven, and the voice I had heard first heard, that's the one back on the island of Patmos, chapter 1, speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. It's amazing. And I will show you what must take place after this. I will show you what must take place after this. Now, this is where John makes his trip to heaven. Now, among scholars, there's two main views. History, or those who believe in the historical view, believe that John is called up to heaven to witness God's sentence Jerusalem to the war that ultimately in AD 70 destroyed the city. Those who are futurists believe that he's up there to symbolize the rapture of Christians and to witness God sends the world to the tribulation, of which we'll see the next few chapters. Um, this is where the divide is. Are we going to view the book of Revelation as being history? Uh, in other words, instead of seeing the future in Revelation, many scholars see connections to events in Romans times. Um, there are Bible teachers in this category like David Ohn, Christopher Rowland, R.C. Sproul, F.F. Bruce, Bruce Metzger, um, they look at it as being historical. But then there's the future view, where they read Revelation as coded lingo that John uses so the Romans can't understand how to encourage the Christians of their future. And so they see in this book a, con a convulsing kind of apocalyptic age. It's a time when disasters, natural and man-made, they pummel the planet, they devastate the human race. And at some point, as the theory goes, Jesus will return, humanity will face judgment day, the punishment or reward that follows and the, the scholars who read the book of Revelation this way are called futurists, okay? They're called futurists. And we see a lot of scholars, R. Rosburn, Charles Ryrie, Schofield, John Wolvard, um, and so uh, Robert Mounts. We see all kinds of different scholars who take this approach to the book of Revelation. And if you look in chapter 4, verse 1, when, when he is called up to heaven, notice this. Some believe, of course, this being the rapture of the church, John hears the trumpet, and now the events that unfold depict a time known as the Great Tribulation. Now, there are tribulations now. Like, if you saw the, 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 the Middle Eastern attack of ISIS, you see the, uh, the earthquake that took place in Haiti. We would say those are tribulations, but that's not the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is also called the time of Jacob's trouble. We see this in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, because it's a time uh, of trouble for the world, and especially for the people of Israel. That's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble, because this reference to Jacob is it's the time of Jacob's trouble. Israel is going to face difficulties in the tribulation of seven years, unlike anything the world has ever seen. And one good thing that comes out of it is that they're actually purged 
of sin. They're purged of sin, especially the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as their Messiah. That's why Romans 11 tells us or refers to the Old Testament prophecy and says, In this day, that's the seven years, are when all Israel, the remnant, left after the purging, will be saved. And ultimately, they're saved. So John sees a throne in heaven, an amazing, amazing throne. He goes on to verse three, uh, verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelia Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. That's the exact imagery used by the prophet Ezekiel. Notice that, chapter 3 of verse 4. This is the Father, by the way. The Father is seated here. We'll jump down a few verses and we'll see the Spirit when the seven spirits in, in verse 5. And then if you go to chapter 5, uh, beginning verse 6, you see a lamb. So this is the Trinity we see here in this rapturous vision that John has. So John sees the Father, and then the Bible says he sees 24 other thrones. Now, I can't be totally confident in this, but I believe that these 24 thrones are uh, representative of the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and then the 12 apostles of the New Testament. Remember what Jesus said to the apostles one day? He said, one day you'll sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so John sees these 24 elders. John also sees... If you go on in chapter 4, what we call living creatures, these are angelic beings. And night and day, they cry out. If you'll look in verse 8 of chapter 4, they cry out. Just continue to follow me in your Bible. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They never stop. Now we get to chapter 5. In chapter 5, John sees a scroll in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. This, of course, is the right hand of the Father. It has writing on the inside and it has writing on the outside. And John seems to know at least something about what's contained inside the scroll because he begins to weep if you read the chapter. You say, Craig, why does he weep? Because no one is found in heaven and earth or under the earth that's worthy enough to open the scroll. And if you look at chapter 5, just as he's weeping, one of the elders, the 24 elders, speaks to John in chapter 5 and verse 5. And I want to read it for you. He says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, there's no need to guess who this lamb is. This is, of course, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He goes on to verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had Seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, why was the lamb able to open the scroll? He's the one worthy because he's the only one whose sacrifice was sufficient enough to redeem the world. So we see that the scroll in Revelation 5 is connected with redemption. And not only is it connected with redemption, it's also connected with judgment because the Bible prophesies that those who reject redemption, those who reject Christ, will face judgment. He goes on in verse 11. Then I looked, of chapter 5, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, verse 12, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever 
and ever. Folks, that's the kind of stuff we will be saying in heaven. But we don't have to wait until we get there. We don't have to wait at all. I want us to read verse 12. Wherever you're seated today or listening to this, let's read verse 12 together in a great uh, shout of praise to our God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Amen and amen. Folks, when you just said that, when I just said that, Jesus hears that. He's the only one worthy because he has obtained redemption by his sacrifice. He's also worthy, the scripture said, to bring judgment on anyone who rejects that grace and sacrifice. So now we get to chapter 6. This is where the seven seals scroll begins to be unsealed. Now, I'm going to go through each of the seals pretty quickly. Seal number one is a rider on a white horse. Some, of course, say this is the Christ. I don't think so at all. If you read there, the first seal, the first rider, the first creature, I don't think it's Christ because he's been on conquest and he's out to conquer. He wants power to rule. This is probably the Antichrist, probably the Antichrist. You get to seal number two, and it's a, a rider on a red horse. This rider is given power to take peace from the earth. When this rider takes peace from the earth, that means that there is world war like no one has ever seen in the history of planet Earth. Seal number three, if you keep going in chapter six, is a rider on a black horse. This, of course, is famine. We would say what we would say, um, starvation for the children of Israel, if we were, the, we were from the historical approach, the futurist approach would be, even though famine would hit the earth, famine always follows the devastation of war, and so the seal number three Logically follows seal number two. Seal number four alludes to a rider named Death. This rider named Death comes on a pale horse, which of course is followed immediately, you see, and it signifies the destiny of those who will, will indeed die. We see seal number five in verse nine. John sees under the altar the martyrs who have died for their faith. They've died for their faith in Jesus Christ, and they cry out, of course, in a loud voice, how long, O sovereign Lord, until you judge, before you avenge our blood? And, and God, of course, responds, you need to wait a little bit longer until your brothers, who are also gonna die, just like you died for their faith, and then the end will come, and then you will indeed be avenged. You get to seal number six, and you see in chapter six, verse 12, I wanna begin reading, I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens were seated like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, this is not necessarily, you've got to understand, chronological. Even the seals are not chronological. But this is the sixth seal just before the seventh seal is loosed. I will tell you, friends, when the seventh one is loose, things get really, really, really bad. Now, I want to take a pause for a second there in Revelation 6. I want to go back to an Old Testament prophet, the prophet Isaiah. Once you go with me out Isaiah chapter 24, I want to read for a few moments out of Isaiah chapter 24. I want to read verse 1 and 2. Because Isaiah 24 prophesies of the very day that we're reading about in Revelation 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 1 of Isaiah 24. He said, See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter 
its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people, for the master for his servant, for the mistress as for her servant, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for the debtor as for creditor. What is he saying? No one will escape. No one will escape this destruction. He goes on in verse three and says, the earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered for the Lord has spoken this word. Now I hate to say it, If you go to verse six, jump down to verse six in Isaiah 24. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their fruit. Therefore, its earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. I hate to say it, but it's what Revelation prophesies. One fourth of mankind are killed when the writer takes peace from the earth in the world war. We saw that in the seal, the second one. And then a bit later, another one third of the community or the earth is perished. So this verse is prophesying that half of the population on earth perishes. Now, I know that's hard to fathom. On planet earth today, there's 7 billion people, over 7 billion. So if you take half of that, divide that by two, that's 3.5 billion people. 3.5 billion people perish. Now, I know that's hard to fathom, but this is what the prophecy says. Let me give it even better terms. There's a little over 300 million people in the U.S., 315 million. So it's 11 times as many people as the entire United States of America. It's hard to fathom, but that's what... He prophesies. He gets to Isaiah, I go back to Isaiah 24. I'm going to begin verse 20. The Bible says, The earth reels like a drunkard, it sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls never to rise again. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. These are the evil powers, these are the wicked kings. He goes on in verse 22. And they will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in a prison and be punished after many days. Now we go back to the book of Revelation. We finish chapter 6. Let's go on to chapter 7. You get to chapter 7 of Revelation and it's a bit of a pause. And John sees an amazing, amazing sight in heaven. I'm going to jump down to verse 9 and read verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Now jump down to verse 13 of the same chapter. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? Now John Gets a little smart here when the elder asked that question. You see that by his response. Look in verse 14. He answered, sir, you know. And what's happening here? Well, these people get saved during this awful time called the Great Tribulation. Now, why in the world is this great multitude that are saved? They're saved because God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to be saved. We see this remnant make its way through this great tribulation. Why? Because God and his will is not for any should perish, but all come to repentance and life in Jesus Christ. God wants people to know him. God longs for people to be in relationship with the Father through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Then we get to chapter 8. I want you to look at verse 1. Don't miss verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, what I want to do right here on this teaching is I want to give you 15 seconds. I'm going to be completely silent. Wherever you're at, listen to this message. Just give 15 seconds, starting now.
That's 15 seconds. And doesn't it feel like a long time? Even in our busy, crazy kind of hitherto and fro culture. It's only 15 seconds, but this is a half an hour silence. This is 30 minutes. What's happening here, Craig? This is what we call the holy hush, the holy calm before the most hellish events are released on this planet that have ever been released in the history of humanity. You get to verse 2 and... The Bible says, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Out of the seven seals that we just read come seven trumpet judgments. Verse three, another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. Verse four, the smoke of the incense, worship and prayer, you see, together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is worship and prayer. You say, what's happening here, Pastor Greg? Every, catch this, every prayer that's been prayed by any believer in the will of God that has not yet been answered is about to be answered. This is amazing. Every single prayer in the will of God that has not been answered up to this point, will be fulfilled as it's hurled to the earth. This is fascinating, folks. Amazing. It goes on to verse 6. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, verse 7, and there came hell and fire mixed with blood and was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. You'll never have to mow your grass again. It goes on to verse 8. The second angel sounded his trumpet in something like a huge mountain. All the blaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures into the sea dry, died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Verse 10. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many died from the waters that had become bitter. Notice this. This word, Wormwood, means bitter. It means bitter. Verse 12. The fourth angel sounded a trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Verse 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Whoa, 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 judgment, judgment, judgment to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three Angels, folks, these are cataclysmic events on our planet. You get to chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, the fifth angel. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth, and the star was given to the key, or the key to the shaft of the abyss. Now listen, let me explain something here. The abyss is a real place somewhere down in the heart of the earth. At some point in the future, demons will be released from there, loosed. And the Bible tells us that locusts come out of there. And if you look at verse 5, these locusts were not allowed to kill the people, but only torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. These are not normal locusts. These are crazy type locusts. And you get to verse 6, and the Bible says, During those days, people will seek death, but they won't find death. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Folks, these locusts, these are, these are what we call demonic beings told not to harm the grass. They're told not to harm the green trees, but they're harming people. 
But notice this, they're, they're told not to kill the people, but just torture the people. You say that's so sci-fi. No, that's real. That's right here in the scripture. And we get to the sixth angel. The sixth angel fascinates me more so than I think the first five. The sixth angel, starting in verse 13, the sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming, we're in chapter 9, from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. Verse 14, it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind, and the number of the mounted troops was 200 million, and I heard their number. What that tells us is that right now there are four angels bound at the river Euphrates. And if you're with us at Dwelling Place this weekend, I'll give you a picture, an image, and a map. I can't do that, of course, on an audio podcast. But there's four angels bound at the river Euphrates. And isn't it interesting what's going on there right now in our day? All the unrest, all the turmoil. And John says that there were four angels would be released and a 200 million man army, two-thirds of the United States, will Move in the Middle East. Verse 17 said, The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. And the heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. And a third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. What in the world is going on here? Why does John write like that? Because he lived a very, very long time ago, 2,000 years ago. He's never seen modern military warfare. He is in the midst of this vision, this apocalyptic vision. He's attempting in his best way with language that he uses to describe something that's very modern. He's never seen modern warfare. He's never seen anything like it. He's only seen literal horses. He's never seen this figurative horse. He's only seen literal chariots. He's never seen a figurative chariot. Now notice this river Euphrates. And I want you to tuck that away in your mind because it will come up again. Hang on. In our time together today. And this 200 million men army. Now we get to Revelation chapter 10. The almighty angel comes down from heaven with a scroll in his hand. And John is asked to, to, uh, or is told, I should say, to ask for the scroll. He asks, and the angel says, here, eat it. And the angel says, it will be as sweet as honey to your mouth, but it will turn your stomach sour. So John takes the scroll, he eats it, and it's sweet as honey to his mouth, but then it turns his stomach sour. And the last verse of chapter 10, which is verse 11 Then I was told, you must prophesy again, John said, about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now, I understand, church, the bittersweet experience of eating the scroll. Because the scroll suggests the word of God. It suggests the prophecy. It suggests God's word. It's a bittersweet message. Why? Because in the book of Revelation, whosoever will, let him come take free of the water of life. But listen, on the opposite side, if you reject that gift, it's bitter. This message in the gospel is a bittersweet message because in their end, there is glory. In Revelation 20, 21, 22, it is glory. But until we get there, there is increased devastation and there is increased chaos in the world that you and I live in. It's a bittersweet scroll. We preachers can identify with this quite often. Then we get to chapter 11. Chapter 11, John finds himself in Jerusalem. There are two witnesses that have ministries that are very similar to Moses and Elijah. 
They are no doubt preaching the gospel. They're preaching the the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that is anti-God and anti-Christ. You say, why is the world anti-Christ? Because the anti-Christ is prevailing throughout the world at this point in the book of Revelation. You get to verse 6. And they have the power, these witnesses, to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. They have the power to turn the waters into blood. They have the power to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Look at verse 5, what's also said about these witnesses. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Isn't that amazing? You remember when Elijah went, uh, when, the king sent to, uh, when the king sent those men to arrest Elijah In the Old Testament, they said, man of God, the king wants to see you. And he said, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you. And it did. This is what we see a reference here. Verse 7 of chapter 11. Now, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, will overpower and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, which is where also the Lord was crucified. He's talking about Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and some from... Every nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. They're, they're not even want to bury them because they want to gloat over their bodies. The inhabitants gloat over them and they celebrate, the Bible said, by sending gifts to one another. They, they send gifts. This is the first ever anti-Christmas. They celebrate with gift giving because these prophets, these witnesses, these two lampstands have have so uh, terrorized them or, or had so given them difficulty in their time. They, they had tormented those who lived on the earth, right? This is what the scripture says, and you go on to verse 11. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Notice for three and a half days, the nations of the earth will look upon them. How is this possible? Because of satellite TV. You know that all of the networks will be gathered in Jerusalem at that time. Then we get the seventh angel sounding his trumpet. Jump down to verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom, one of my favorite verses in the book of Revelation, of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He will reign forever and ever. We are now nearing the end. You get to chapter 12, there's a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fight against the dragon, which is Satan and his angels. And the dragon and the angels of the dragon, they lose the battle and they're cast out of heaven with all of his entourage, the dragon is. He's cast out. Did you know right now Satan is still given access into heaven? He is. Right now, while we talk, he is given access into heaven. You say, what does he do when he goes to heaven? Well, Revelation 12 and 10 tells us what he does in heaven. The Bible says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now now have come uh, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. Now notice this. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. What does Satan do in the presence of heaven now? He accuses you and he accuses me. Verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. And when he's cast down, look at the end of verse 12, he's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. If you go on and read verses 13 down to, uh, to verse uh, 17, you'll see that, that he goes after because he's now furious after the remnant of Israel. And God provides a place in the desert for Israel in this time away from Satan because 
because he's protecting them. And because Satan can't get to Israel, he gets even more mad. And so he begins to go after other of those who are not Jewish, but have put their faith in Christ, have accepted the Messiah. And in the last verse of chapter 12, the Bible says, then the, the, the dragon was enraged at the woman, went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Chapter 13 opens with the devil standing on the shore of the sea. And a beast comes up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. And there is a much debate about what this is. I personally believe this is a renewed or what we would call revived Roman Empire. And uh, we're going to look at this later in the series. We'll talk pretty extensively about this in our sermon series this month. Um, and particularly this fall when I teach out of the book of Revelation in our growth phases. But one comes to head up this revived Roman Empire. We know him as the Antichrist. Now, how does the Antichrist gain his power? Well, the dragon, the devil, gives the Antichrist his power. And the dragon, which is the devil, gives this revived Roman Empire their power. Romans thir uh, Revelation 13, beginning in verse 3. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound. Notice this. But the fatal wound had been healed. And the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. This is a fascinating verse about the Antichrist. I used this a couple months ago in our series on miracles verified because we often think that miracles verify their authenticity of the gospel message. But notice here's there's false miracles. This, this is a false prophet. And this is what we call a false resurrection. A false resurrection. There's a wound on him that is healed. Then you get to chapter 13, verse 11, where the Bible reads, Then I saw a second beast coming up out of the earth, and it two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. This is the false prophet. So we have the, false, the Antichrist and the false prophet. And he uh, causes an image to be set up and a people to worship the beast. Uh, the Antichrist through this image. They're, he wants them to worship the Antichrist and. And he says, you've got to get a mark on your forehead or you've got to get a mark on your right hand to buy or sell in this day if you'll read the text. This is the only way commerce and trade and business takes place. And what you have here, folks, in chapter 13 is what we call the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity. You have the dragon. That's the devil. That's the devil himself. You have the antichrist. And then you have the false prophet. And the false prophet's job is the same as the Holy Spirit's job with Jesus, that he brings glory to the antichrist. Just as the Holy Spirit brings glory to Jesus, the false prophet brings glory to the Antichrist. He shines a magnifying glass, so to speak, on the Antichrist. This is what we call the unholy trinity. Now you get to chapter 14, and this is one of the most fascinating verses, in my opinion, the whole Bible. Chapter 14, verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now, i got to be honest with you. I don't know how for years I never saw this verse. I never saw this verse. Now, listen very carefully. I believe very strongly our need to be obedient to the great commission that Jesus has given us. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you to the very end of the age, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. I believe that wholeheartedly. But as always told growing up that we are to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, preach it to every creature. After the church gets the gospel to everyone, then the rapture can take place and the end will come. Well, when you read this verse, based on this verse, before the end of time, yes, we, the church, have the opportunity and we have the responsibility to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, but before the end, God will send an angel around the world 
And he sends this angel around the world to proclaim the gospel. Fascinating, fascinating text here in the book of Revelation. This reminds us very clearly of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. And if you remember Matthew chapter 24, this is Jesus speaking about the tribulation. And he said these words in 24 verse 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Then the end will come. If you match what Jesus said with this verse, in verse, uh, verse 6 of Revelation 14, then the final message of the gospel will not just be by you and I. The final message of the gospel will be proclaimed by an angel around the world. An angel will go to the far ends of every island, nation, tribe, people, tongue, and language and preach the gospel. Then you get to Revelation chapter 15, verse one, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. Jump down to verse 8. The Bible says, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. It's my opinion, my personal opinion, that at this point everyone who is going to be saved is already saved, redeemed, held in Christ, and in this seven-year period, I feel like prayer will do no good at this point. No one can get into the access of the Father who's not already gained access. And now he goes on to these seven bowls of God's wrath. Now, I don't want to go through all of them, but I'm going to focus on one. You see it in the sixth plague in chapter 16. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. I want to focus on this one because it's very interesting. Verse 12, the sixth angel, uh, chapter 16, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Remember I told you we'd come back to Euphrates. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Isn't that amazing? Now, the kings from the east was a common designation in ancient times for people who, who lived east of the Euphrates River. Now, who lives east of the Euphrates River today? Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, etc., and the 200 million man army that we saw released earlier, that they were released by one of those angels for this war, where is that 200 million man army released? Where are they going? Where are they marching towards? Where are they headed? Well, the Bible tells us right here in Revelation 16 and verse 16. Then they gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Where is that? Armageddon. It's called the Valley of Megiddo. I was just standing there this last May. We went around the, the Mount Carmel where Elijah had the great showdown and you get to Megiddo. In Megiddo, you overlook the Jezreel Valley and I, you look at Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor was the mountain of transfiguration that you see in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke that Jesus took the three disciples, Peter, James, and John on the mountain to be transfigured. You can overlook the Jezreel Valley. It's a beautiful. I stood up on the highest point looking over the valley and I remember just focusing on that valley. Napoleon called the valley the perfect battlefield. And this 200 million man army, where are they headed? Well, this 200 million man army will begin to move towards Israel. I don't know if you know this or not, but are you aware of the prophecies of Islam? Are you aware that the prophecies teach that before the 12th Imam, the Muslim Messiah appears, before he appears, there is to be a global chaos? Are you aware that the former president of Iran believed that he was called to help prepare or pave the way for the 12th Imam? This is one of the reasons why he, I believe he was trying to get 
nuclear weapons. Do you realize the prophecies of Islam also say that, that before the 12th Imam appears, that Israel will literally be wiped off of the map. This is a fascinating day that you and I live in. Jesus, of course, is coming soon. And, and you see that in this great uh, battle there in the Valley of Megiddo, 200 million men come to fight. They come for this great, what we call, battle of Armageddon. Then in chapter 16, verse 17, if you'll follow along with me there in your Bibles, verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts. This is what uh, chapter 16, verse 17 says, put it into their hearts. Or, or excuse me, uh, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Verse 18, then there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. Jump down to verse 21. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds. Think about that. A piece of hail that's 100 pounds. The Bible says, fell on the people and they cursed God on account of the plague of hell because the plague was so terrible. There are people still left on the planet at this time. And Revelation 16 tells us twice that they refused to repent. Twice these people refused to repent. And the final verse says that they cursed God because they knew he had all the control. Now we get to chapter 17. John sees a woman riding a beast. The beast, I believe, is this revived Roman Empire. The woman, according to the last uh, verse of chapter 17, is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. This is what the Bible says in chapter 17, verse 18. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kingdoms of the earth. What city is that? Well, there's a fascinating author named Joel Rosenberg, and he writes riveting books. I've read multiple of them. One of his most recent releases is a book called Epicenter, of which I read uh, pretty extensively yesterday. He believes that this great city is, is literal Babylon. He believes it's the Babylon literally. If you get to chapter 18, verse 1 and 2, he said, After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, and he had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. And with a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons, a house for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. That's, notice, he, he said, fallen is Babylon the great. That's where united mankind against God began. If you look in Genesis 11, the tower of Babel, what we call now Babylon, that united mankind came against God. And it's interesting that that's where it came against God in the beginning, and that's ultimately where it ends, Babylon. The end of that verse, this She's become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit. Verse 3, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. The merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. All that is not of God is represented here in Babylon. If Joel Rosenberg is right, and it is literal Babylon, here's what he says in his book, Epicenter. He said, the ancient city of Babylon will emerge virtually overnight like a phoenix rising from the ashes to become a modern wonder of the world. Iraq is described by the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel. Iraq is described by Isaiah, by Jeremiah, by Daniel, as well as by John in Revelation as the center of unprecedented wealth and power in the last days before the return of Christ. 
The city of Babylon is not only literally comes back from the dead in the last days, but the writer of the scripture portrays her as Iraq's future capital. We also learn from Revelation that Iraq will become the center of great evil as well. Babylon, right here in chapter 18 and 19, it represents essentially all and everything the world has to offer that will not last. He who does the will of God lasts forever. All the other temporary pleasures, they will pass. This is represented in these two chapters. Now, three times in the book of Revelation, chapter 18, we are told that Babylon will fall in one hour. That's amazing. The attacks of 9-11 helped me to appreciate the reality of that prophecy because what we saw the change in one, one hour just with four planes in our own country. One hour, the strongest nation on the planet shaken to its core on 9-11, 2001. Then you get to chapter 19. Chapter 19, there's four times heaven knows it's the end. The end is here. But the end here on earth is the beginning of heaven. Amen. Because Jesus is coming back and he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. And four different times in Revelation 19, I'm going to need participation from everybody listening. They shout hallelujah. I'm going to read this wonderful stretch of text. And I want you with fervor to say hallelujah if you're reading your Bible along with me. The four times, the third time he says amen, hallelujah. The other times he just says hallelujah. Verse 1 of chapter 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I love that, I love that. I love that. You get to verse 11 of chapter 19. And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp shore, a sword which, with, to, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And our Jesus triumphantly enters the planet again. And he comes to take the Antichrist. And he comes to take the false prophet. And he throws them into the lake of fire. In the lake of fire will be the final judgment and will be the final place. 
place for all of those who've rejected the grace and the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. And you get to chapter 20, and the angel comes once again, and he opens the abyss that we read about early. He takes Satan, he throws him into the abyss for a thousand years, and now we have the institution or the inauguration of what we call the millennial reign. We will rule and reign with Jesus Christ on the earth for a thousand years. Isaiah 9 and 6 and 7, of the increase of his peace and government, there will be no end. Daniel prophesies that some will survive the great tribulation, unbelievers he's talking about, that will still be living on the planet for the thousand years. They will marry and they will marry Mary and they will have children and have children's children. They will have the opportunity in that thousand years to bow to the king. But unbelievably, after a thousand years, Satan will be loosed one more time. And this is what we call the one last deception. And Satan is loosed for one last deception. He gathers the people against God and fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And verse 10 of chapter 20, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, at this point... In history, we go into what we call the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment. And anybody whose name is not found in the Lamb's book of life is thrown into the lake of fire alongside Satan, alongside the Antichrist, alongside the false prophet. And all those who've rejected the grace of God are there with them. You get to chapter 21 and now you have a new heaven and new earth. This is a place with no more crying. It's a place with no more pain. It's a place with no more death. The capital of this new world is New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem comes down from heaven. And in chapter 21, the Bible begins to paint a picture for us that this New Jerusalem is, um, is unmatched. Its beauty is unsurpassed. There's nothing as beautiful as this picture described in Revelation 21. We finally get to the final chapter of this book. You get to chapter 22, and here's how he closes and how I want to close our panoramic view of the book of Revelation today. Verse 17 of Revelation 22, the Bible says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take free of the gift of the water of life come. Notice that. It's an invitation to anyone who whosoever wants to come because God has told us how this will end. We see how it would end. And we live in a grace. We live in an hour of grace and redemption and mercy and forgiveness of our dear Savior. And God, by His Spirit, is saying, come. And I don't know if you're listening to this message today. Maybe you're hearing the tug of the Holy Spirit and the voice of the Holy Spirit saying to you, come unto the heart of the Father. Jesus said, no one can come to the heart of the Father John 6, except be by the Spirit that draws him. Would you heed that invitation today? I encourage you over the next few weeks, as you continue, if you're following us on the podcast, to continue to journey with us. We will jump into our first message this coming weekend. I felt it would be impossible to jump into that message until we gave a panoramic view of the entire book. And as we jump in, we encourage you, if it interests you, to continue to share and follow along with us as we journey through this incredible book. Why? Because he said, blessed, there's a promise, is the one who hears the words read aloud and takes attention, gives heart, gives heed, gives reverence to these words. 
We appreciate you tuning in today. Again, thanks so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.